Hi, and welcome to the Antinu Energy Transition Podcast. Today, with Professor Kimberly Nicholas from Lund University in Sweden. We'll talk about why there is no doubt anymore and how we can fix the climate crisis. But first, we actually have to apologize for the sound quality of this episode. It's not that great. Yet, we think that the conversation that I had with Kimberly is worth to be published. And that's why we published it. And that's why you can listen to it right now. But we promise that the sound quality in the future will be better. So I hope that you will stick to listen to this episode and that we can welcome you again to the next episodes. Episodes of the Antinu Energy Transition Podcast will be published from now on every Thursday. Take care and enjoy the show. A study a few years ago found that we were on track to make the necessary transition to a clean energy system in 363 years. That was the pace at that time. Welcome to the first real episode of the Antinu Energy Transition podcast. There is a lot of knowledge available amongst researchers, but very often this, this knowledge actually does not go out or at least doesn't go out enough or is not shared enough. So that's why we at the Antinu Energy Transition Initiative start this podcast now. And today I have a lovely guest here with me to actually kick off this first episode. She was born and raised in California in a place surrounded by grapes and wine. She has a PhD from Stanford. She published a lot of peer-reviewed papers. I had the opportunity to listen to a keynote from her at a conference in Bergen some months ago called Beyond Oil. And this is why I thought she would be the perfect fit for this first episode to give us an idea of what we have to do, but also give us some hope that it's possible. Welcome to the podcast, Kimberly Nicholas. Thank you so much, Julius. I'm honored to be your first guest. Great to be here. <laughs> cool. That's lovely. What are you going to learn in this podcast, people? So what we're going to talk about is it, yes, it is warming. We have global climate change. And we're going to talk about why that's been happening. And we're also going to talk about that it's bad. But the good thing is we can fix it. And we, so a good part of the end, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we're going to talk about how we can fix it and what that needs. But before we jump right in, I want to ask Kim to just introduce herself a little bit. So Kim, what gets you up in the morning and how did you become the person that you are today? Well, now it's coffee that gets me up in the morning because I am not a morning person and my husband is, so he makes the coffee. That's what actually gets me out of bed. But what uh, keeps me going and the thing that I'm working on and working for is to stop climate change. So I'm working for a world where we can have both people and nature thriving, and that requires that we leave fossil fuels in the ground and stop warming as fast as possible. And um, you don't do that only as a researcher, but you do a lot of online talks. You also you're, have been in several podcasts and you've wrote this book, Under the Sky We Make, How to Be a Human in a Warming World. And one of the sentences that I read there is a scientist's book about the ap apocalyptic urgency of prioritizing not just the planet, but also our humanity. What I read in this book really sums that book up. And we're going to have some, some ideas from that book in this episode So right now. So also just people, if you're interested in learning more later on, from Kimberly, then check out her book and it's also going to be in the show notes. So Kimberly, it's warming. <laughs> what is, let's start very basic. What is the current state of global warming right now? And um, how much has it already been heated up? What's going on on this planet? Give us some idea. Yes. So we know that it's warming. It has warmed a little over one degree Celsius so far. And uh, we also know that it's us, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But we see the warming now with observation. So it's not something hypothetical or projected in the future. 
we can see it with our eyes. And the shifts are now big enough almost everywhere in the world that people are noticing this in when flowers bloom in the spring, when birds migrate, the seasons feel different. Uh, there's less snow. So it has consistently warmed over both oceans and land really almost everywhere around the world. When you look at the, the data, uh, the almost entire globe is red, meaning it's warmer than it has been in the past. Yeah. And what's interesting is I feel that many people, we kind of know it from a, from, from like what we read in the newspapers. What, what are the, what are the factors or like, what are the, what, what do scientists do in order to measure that this climate change is already happening? How do they know? We have temperature records, thermometers going back, uh, 150 years or more. Um, those have been increasing, of course, over time as we have research stations around the world and take more data and measurements. For the last about a little over 40 years, we have satellite data so we can measure the whole globe from space, basically, from satellites circling overhead. Um, we have photographs, which can show really dramatic, probably most people have seen examples of glaciers, uh, could be in the Alps or in Alaska or around the world where you standing in the same spot taking a photograph and you just see a very, very big difference in melted or even completely disappeared ice. Um, those are some examples of, of how we measure it. So it's both uh, oceans also, I mean, more than 70% of this planet is covered by oceans. They're not as well studied as land, but we have a lot of temperature buoys and instruments in the oceans as well. So we have a really clear and consistent record of observation. And then we can also go back further with um, what's called proxy data. So we can look at pollen from trees that gets trapped in lakes and that tells us what species grew where. And we know what temperature range those species thrive in. So we can see if it was warmer or colder in these places in the past. And that helps us track where species live and how that's been changing. Um, other examples of that are tree rings and coral reefs. So living things reflect the climate in which they grew up, basically, and we can use their either long-lived species or records uh, to tell us what's happening on planet Earth. When you when I read your book, when I looked into it, you also tell some stories about the wine and the grapes that you studied during your PhD, I think. You also write in your book about this can feel somewhat abstract, but when you then have these really big fires, for example, in California, and you actually have um, some yeah, family members maybe that have to flee their houses, then it becomes much more real. Can you maybe talk about very quickly about um, what, what does it make you feel when you, when you realize that it's not just some random data somewhere out there, but it's actually having an impact on your own life already? Sure. So, I mean, I first started looking at climate change. Actually, I found an essay from 1992 when I was 13. And I wrote my eighth grade essay on rainforests. And there's a, a section in there about climate change. And I say, there's something called the greenhouse effect, burning fossil fuels, traps heat in the atmosphere. Scientists think that the earth will warm substantially in the next century. And scientists were right. <laughs> and when now we live in that next century. And it, it was so, um, such a bizarre experience for me to think, okay, that this was in the age before the internet. My sources, I had about eight or 10 sources. They were magazines from my local library and that my parents got at home and a couple of books. And even then, you know, a, a kid could really find out all the science you really needed to know to understand the problem. So it, at that time, it felt really distant and hypothetical. And as you say, my family evacuated from the wildfires in California in 2017. 
and have been affected by them every year since with smoke and threats um, to places that we love and people that we love. And thankfully, my family has stayed safe, but we have many friends and neighbors who have lost homes and even some who lost their lives. And we know that those fires in the American West have more than doubled since my childhood because of human-caused climate change. So it, it, it isn't abstract. It is something very tangible. The taste of the wines that I love and grew up with is changing and has changed because of human-caused climate change. We still have climate deniers who say, yeah, yeah, it's happened again and again over the course of the life of the Earth. Why do we know it's different this time? Why do we know it's us? Well, it's true that climate has always changed and climate has changed in the past. But now we know beyond a doubt that the changes that we're experiencing now and living through are caused by us. They're caused by humans mainly burning fossil fuels, secondarily changing land use and causing deforestation. And that statement in the, the latest uh, scientific report from the IPCC, the United Nations Climate Panel, that came out August 2021, that said it's unequivocal that humans are warming the climate. So that just means there is no doubt that's been through thousands of studies that's been through now every government in the world because that summary for policymakers gets approved line by line. So there truly is no doubt that humans are causing climate change from adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Yeah. How do we do that? I know it's very basic questions, but like how, what are the key processes that we do that add CO2 to the atmosphere? So basically the problem is people are burning a lot of carbon and adding it to the atmosphere. And that's carbon basically that comes from plants or millions of years ago. So plants that grew in swamps and on land and then got buried and through heat and time turned into fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas. So a common misconception is fossil fuels. People think of fossils and dinosaurs. It's not dead dinosaurs that we're burning. It's dead plants. And plants are like a battery that stores the sun's energy through the process of photosynthesis. So plants take carbon out of the atmosphere. They produce oxygen that we breathe, pretty <laughs> essential for life on Earth as we know it. Um, but we are now taking millions and millions of years of plants and burning them so fast that we're really quickly changing the atmosphere in ways that haven't happened before from human activities. So as you said, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. It's trapping heat and heating up the surface of the earth, both land and oceans. About three quarters of climate pollution comes from burning fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas. So that's the main problem. And we know to stop climate change, we have to completely stop adding carbon to the atmosphere. So we're going to have to leave almost all of those fossil fuels in the ground and get off them as quickly as possible. And the second contributor is land use change. So that is What is that? Because that that sounds always a bit more abstract than just like we are burning burning gas and and, and oil. What what is land use change? Land use change is cutting down trees and uh, disturbing soil, and thereby releasing carbon either from burning or disturbing plants that were growing, and by burning or disturbing soil, which is like a library of carbon. So. Carbon comes out of the atmosphere through plants. It's in the bodies of plants and their leaves and stems and roots and so on while they're alive. When they die, a lot of that carbon ends up in the soil. And if it's um, undisturbed, it can accumulate over time. And so soils actually have more than twice the carbon in them than the atmosphere. So they're a big storehouse of carbon. And that's great because if you're for farmers, that helps increase crop yields and maintain water and cope with drought. So carbon in the soil is great. 
But if you disturb it and it is released to the atmosphere, then it's acting as a greenhouse gas. Which is crazy that on the one hand, one of the arguments is always we have to for we have to build like not not build but like we have to what's the what's the what's the opposite of deforestation? We have to forest. No, you can't say that. Reforestation. Reforestation. So if you, if you, yeah. Reforest is like replacing forests that were cut down, and afforestation is adding forests where they haven't been historically, at least for a long time. Yeah. So it's one of the key arguments is always we have to afforest, we have to add new, new, new forest. But then when we when we just look at these big fires that we just have had, for example, in Australia and in the west of the United States, this is actually we see that because we have climate change, everything's burning much more quicker, and we have to put more forests out there. But what's happening is actually that we Uh, we decrease the number of trees that we actually have on the planet, which is so ridiculous somehow. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my home state of California, since the year 2000, has actually, the ecosystems there have actually been a source of carbon to the atmosphere rather than a sink. So for the last 20 years, because of a combination of human factors, basically, you know, fragmenting ecosystems, disrupting natural cycles, increased pests and disease pressure, which is partly from climate change, increased fires and catastrophic fires, there's been more carbon released from the vegetation and soils and, and ecosystems in California than they're able to take up. So we definitely need to protect existing ecosystems, but also ensure that they're healthy enough to do their jobs, which part of which is taking up carbon. What's going to happen if we don't get this transition done quickly? Give us the horror scenario. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is so we've talked about it's warming, it's us. We're sure, you mentioned the climate, people who deny the reality of, of climate change earlier. And thankfully that has pretty much gone out of style. So we can almost stop talking about climate change deniers because they're less than 7%, even in countries like the US, which is kind of the hotbed of um, uh, this kind of resistance to facts. We got a fair and, share of them in Germany as well though, but yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is you don't have that many because there just aren't that many anywhere. They're just very loud. So, I mean, the vast majority of people, and there have been, unfortunately, misinformation campaigns and deliberate attempts to sow misinformation and delay climate action. But most people, the overwhelming majority, I mean, more than 90% now are not on that page. Yeah, and agreeing. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah, okay. So to answer, or go ahead. Sorry. No, you said it's bad because we didn't actually talk. Is is it bad? And so, is it bad? <laughs> It's really bad. Mm -hmm. It is really bad. I mean, we're already seeing the impacts of warming just over one degree. The purpose of the Paris Agreement is to stop warming as fast as possible. And we now know that aiming for 1.5 degrees of warming is the difference between life and death for people in places around the world. It's really critical. So it's not the case that, you know, well below two degrees is a safe limit because we know that we already live in a world, unfortunately, of dangerous climate change. And the way that we measure that, there's three elements that are part of the Paris Agreement that define dangerous climate change. So the point of stopping climate change is to prevent interfering with food production, to allow ecosystems to adapt naturally to climate change, and to support sustainable economic development around the world. And we know from data now, not models and projections, but actual observations and, and lived reality on the ground, human-caused climate change is already reducing crop yields and increasing variability and making it harder to farm and reducing food production. It's already increasing income and wealth inequality. So the climate change has 
increase the gap between rich and poor countries by 25% already. So it's pushing poor countries further behind. And in many cases, ecosystems are really struggling to keep up with the pace of climate change because it is really rapid. There are species that are getting pushed up mountains trying to stay in their comfort zone temperature-wise. And as that temperature increases and they're moving up the mountains, they run out of space. So we're seeing limits to adaptation already now. So even at one degree, a little over one degree warming, it is bad. And the more warming we have, the worse that it gets. Yeah, and we're sure about that, isn't it? That's There's enough scientific data uh, out there. And what you just mentioned for this example, for, for these uh, some types of animals to already adapt, but already running into problems to continue to adapt. Um, these are enough signs that, yeah, that it's it's not just us, it's also bad. And we used to talk, sometimes people talked about winners and losers from climate change. And I think that's really not an appropriate framework because now the evidence is just so overwhelming that we all really lose with climate change. Yeah, There was a, mm. yeah, go ahead. No, I just wanted to support you. Like I've heard also these ideas of like, yeah, we need more. It's okay if we have more CO2 because then plants can grow better because they need CO2. But I think that might just work in a in a greenhouse in a very small area. But when we apply that to the whole planet, that's definitely not going to work. Yeah, it's not. plants right now are mostly not limited by CO2. So it's not the case that there'll be a benefit to having more CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, we also know from what are studies of studies, basically, where scientists assemble all the studies on a certain topic and synthesize what is known, what do, what do these tell us about the world, basically. There was one of those studies of studies recently that had more than 4,000 studies in it and concluded it's overwhelmingly negative. The impacts of climate change are overwhelmingly negative. They looked at eight different measures. So, you know, for human health, both physical and mental health, for crop yields, for natural ecosystems, for water, for security. I mean, Every dimension you look at, it's bad. And the more warming, the worse. So, I mean, basically the most important and meaningful thing we can do being alive right now is to stop warming as fast as possible because whatever it is you love and care about, that is dependent on stopping warming as fast as possible. And the quicker we can do that, the better and more options we have. We are not working, uh, going towards a really great direction. But now the question is obviously, We can put our heads into the sand or into the water and just like consume more and just like, yeah, let's travel to Bali as long as it's still over water or we can do something about it. So, and this podcast is about doing something about it. So in, in one of, in your book, you also have this chapter on, we can fix this. So what can we do and what stops us from doing it? Well, the basic thing we need to do is leave fossil fuels in the ground. That's number one. We won't stop climate change without doing that. And That is starting to happen, but far too slowly. A study a few years ago found that we were on track to make the necessary transition to a clean energy system in 363 years. That was the mm. piece of how, that how many years do we have? So it, about. <laughs> we have about a hundred months yeah. to cut emissions in half. We need to have transformed at least half of the energy system by 2030. So that's about a hundred months from now. 
Yeah, and the crazy thing is when you look at energy systems, t uh, 10 years or eight years is not a lot of time. It seems to be a lot of time in a single person's life or not even, but in terms of energy, it's nothing because the the life cycles of these technologies is so long and the, the, the development. This is also why I'm very often confused of people coming around and saying, yes, we need these small nuclear reactors or we need like some other fancy technologies as if that technology will save us. It's not going to be just innovation, but we come to that in a second. So what can we do? What we can do, I mean, it, so let's talk about who we are. If we are governments, we need to keep our Paris promises. And no government in the world, no major emitter is doing that right now. So there's been progress. For example, before the Paris Agreement, the pathway the world was on climate-wise was headed for something like four degrees of warming, which is catastrophic. Now, after the latest negotiations at Glasgow, um, if you look at the pledges for 2030, which I think is the most realistic, we're somewhere around two and a half degrees of warming. That's not good enough, but it's a huge improvement. Um, so things have been going in the right direction, but just too slowly. And rich countries like mine, I live in Sweden, my home country of the US, uh, you're also in Scandinavia, the UK, we need to be cutting emissions about 10% per year. That's much faster than anyone is doing right now. But it is doable. We know what needs to be done to make these transition happen. But, I mean, from the big system perspective, it's about switching, shutting down fossil fuel infrastructure fast and fairly. So pipelines, power plants, anything that runs on coal, oil, or gas, cars. Transport has, systems, yeah, yeah. Yep. And getting that to run on electricity and making clean electricity. So for, we know how to make fossil-free electricity and we know how to run most things we need on fossil-free electricity. There's a couple sectors that are more technically challenging, but certainly for the next 100 months of um, that we have to cut emissions in half globally, we have the technology we need in hand. So it's about getting it out there. And that takes policies. So that's from government. That takes businesses lining up their emissions with a stable climate. And really importantly, that takes citizens and consumers, but also citizens in engaging and pushing on our elected officials and democracies who represent us to deliver their promises And in making change happen, and we have as individuals five superpowers, five high-impact climate roles, and those are also really important to make these big system changes happen. Which are these five? So it is as consumers, which people are familiar with, but it's also our role in organizations, as role models, as investors, and as citizens. And these are the places that I've identified with colleagues. These are the high impact areas where we know what's effective and what works and where we really need more people engaging. And even just a couple hours a week of doing what you're already doing in these areas and shifting it to be more climate friendly or taking something that's not serving you that well. Doom scrolling is a bad habit of mine. <laughs> I'm trying to get out of on social media. If I did 20 minutes less of doom scrolling a day and put it towards high impact climate action, that would be absolute. I mean, I am already doing that, but you know, for people who aren't taking that action, it would be absolutely transformative because most people are already concerned or alarmed about climate change, but most people are almost never or never talking about climate change and not taking any of these high impact actions. So changes in behavior in that group, which is actually the majority would be absolutely huge. 
What would you say to a person who 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 says what we in research could, uh, could ta um, call the the prisoner's dilemma? It's pretty well established by now that the prisoner's dilemma is actually the wrong framework to understand climate change. But if if someone has that idea, the solution to the prisoner's dilemma is trust. And in acting in a trustworthy way, that's how you build trust. So basically, the prisoner's dilemma is a situation where if people, if two parties cooperate, everybody wins. But the, the risk is if one party de defects, they get a benefit. So you have to build trust. And the way you build trust is by being trustworthy. So and leading by example. And We see examples of that today. I, a simple example from today in my own life. Um, in my town here in Lund in Sweden, we have something called the um, Free Time Bank. It's basically a, a circular economy idea. It's run by the city, the municipality. People donate old sports equipment and they clean it up and take care of it and they loan it out for free. So you go by and I picked up ice skates there today. So I can do some ice skating now over the Christmas break with these free, nice, well-maintained ice skates that I borrowed for a couple weeks for free. And I just gave them my phone number. And the guy who runs it was there saying, you know, stories about how people come in and say, oh, this, you know, I'm from another country besides Sweden and this would never work there. And he just had such a lovely attitude of like, it would work there. You have to trust people and then people are trustworthy. And if you give them your trust and build it, it actually works. So yeah, I think I don't, I don't, I mean, I guess another answer to those people who, want to frame it in terms of the prisoner's dilemma is, okay, maybe they're not the right candidate to take the superpower role of role model. So what are they doing as a citizen? What are they doing as an investor? What are they doing as part of an organization? Like get them to focus somewhere else. If, if that, you know, doesn't fit their theory of change, they can still be useful doing something else. Yeah, no, but I think it's, yeah, I, Just talking to you right now, I think again that, that, that this, that, yeah, it's the super, that, that being a role model is really a superpower, and the we are all social animals, aren't we? And if we should be the leaders that we didn't have, maybe. And if we do that, I and mean, if we take the responsibility, that's well, that's a quote from uh, Simon Sinek. But um, if we take the responsibility, then other people look to us because we are all social animals, and we are not just influenced by the others, but we can also influence influence the others in the other in the other way in the other direction so i think maybe we'll we'll actually stop this podcast right here with this with this very nice comment on hey everyone if you're listening to this we trust you kimberly trusts you and i trust you and um, we try to do this together and if you want to be on track to support uh, as well this energy transition then Please do that in your local community. If you need some motivational words, uh, reach out to us on Twitter or on Instagram or uh, I don't know where Kimberly else is, probably on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, let us know what you think. Let us know what you're doing. And um, we'll, we are happy. Look, I'm super happy to just support you, for example, online to reposting you, your cool projects, because that's what the world needs. Cool project that bring our emissions down. And if we can help with that, then let us know. Kimberly, thanks for joining for the podcast today. Is there anything else that you want to say in the end, um, maybe how people can reach out to you? Sure. Thank you, Julius. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. Uh, the best way to find me is at my newsletter, which is called We Can Fix It. Uh, it's on a platform called Substack. So it's wecanfixit.substack.com. And I write a monthly column there about facing the climate crisis with facts, feelings, and action. So you can look back on the archives and get a to-do list of high-impact climate action um, and connect with me there, and you'll hear from me about once a month. So thank you so much. 
That's cool. I'm going to put it in the show notes as well. All right. Thanks, Kimberly, for joining us today. And all the best to you. Take care in Lund and maybe we'll see each other another day. Thank you, Julius. Thanks for having me and for doing this podcast. Bye.